Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and, and uh, once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. Um, very, very excited. We're back to our full two-hour schedule beginning this evening. Uh, as I have mentioned the last couple of shows, uh, it was sort of a, a pre-show, if you will, uh, early in the season just to kind of get warmed back up. Uh, but tonight is uh, a full two-hour broadcast, and as the uh, intro mentioned, it's uh, going to be starting off with the Coach's Corner panel, and I'll introduce uh, uh, tonight's panelists here in just a moment. And then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by my very special guest. And tonight joining me is Dr. Tom Dorsal. He is a, a highly experienced uh, psychologist, a sports psychology coach, and mental conditioning consultant. He's going to be joining me a little bit later on in the broadcast. And, um, but first, let me uh, introduce tonight's uh, panel for Coach's Corner. Uh, first up is Sue Weger. She is a number one best-selling international author, a motivational speaker, and peak performance coach. Uh, she's a 24-plus year LPJ Class A professional and owner of Uyghur Consulting, LLC. Uh, also rounding out tonight's uh, first uh, Coach's Corner panel here of the season is uh, my good friend Pete Buchanan. Uh, he's the founder and director of instruction of Plain Simple Golf, LLC, which of course houses the Plain Simple Golf Circuit and the Simple Swing Repeater Training Brace. Uh, he's been uh, helping uh, golfers focus on building a, a repeatable spring, uh, swing. And he's been teaching this great game for over 30 years. Uh, please welcome my very special guests uh, on Coach's Corner, Pete Buchanan and Sue Weaker. Good evening, guys, and welcome. Good evening. Glad to be here. Yes, very good to be on again, Ted. Well, I appreciate it, and thank you, as I mentioned to both of you uh, off-air. This is Season 10 uh, for the broadcast, and about se- uh, about nine years for Coach's Corner, because it started in the second season, but... Uh, Nine, uh, 10 years overall for the show, so I'm really excited about that, and I'm glad to have you two uh, to start the Coach's Corner uh, panel discussions uh, for 2022, so I'm really excited, and uh, thank you both for, uh, for joining me on the first uh, uh, Coach's Corner panel of the season. Absolutely. I always enjoy yeah. the conversations we have with each other, for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right, so... It's beginning a new season, as they say. Um, for some that, of course, in the southeast and even southwest and certain parts of the country obviously have the benefit of playing all year round. But for some of those that are stuck up in the, uh, the northeast and northwest, what have you, and other parts, uh, they're still digging out a little bit from some of the snow they've had and, and uh, are probably not getting out to the golf course quite yet. Um, some might have the uh, benefit of an indoor training facility, but uh, many don't. And... Uh, so, but we wanted to give them some 
some tips on uh, beginning a new season. So we're going to treat this mm-hmm. as we're here at the beginning of March. It's March 3rd. So now's uh, certainly a good time to get started on things. So I wanted to talk about that. So, you know, a lot of other uh, sports guys require athletes to sort of uh, make split decisions. Uh, golf is a slow-paced game that requires careful planning and focus before um, making every shot. Uh, fundamentals are uh, vitally important in golf, but so too is being mentally strong enough to block out things like distractions while uh, you're playing. So I want to talk about some of the steps, and we may also include in the discussion tonight about tempo, because that's something that for a lot of golfers, again, especially up in the Northeast, that get a little rigid through the, through the years, um, uh, or through the months, rather, um, find that they don't quite have their golf tempo, if you will, uh, when they get back out, uh, their swing uh, kind of seems a little bit dicey, if you will, when they first come up in the season. So, so Pete, I'm going to start with you, if you don't mind, uh, with this step here. We're going to talk about beginning a new season. Um, and, and I'm a firm believer, and I think you probably agree, that you need to begin every hole as though it's your first um, hole in the round. Now, obviously, when you step up to the first tee, it is, but you want to treat every hole as though it's your first. So doing so is obviously easy on the first hole, but to try to achieve that sort of free feeling on subsequent holes uh, sometimes isn't always e- easy for uh, a lot of common uh, alleys of golfers that struggle with a tee shot on a hole, especially if they've posted a bad round. So um, I think having a short memory and sort of putting those bad holes uh, out of your mind uh, as soon as uh, as you step off the green, I think is, is, is important. So for that first step and, and really focusing on that first shot, not just from the first tee, but first shot of every hole is important. What do you like to suggest to your students to, um, as they begin a new season, what they should be thinking about, what they should be focusing on, and what they need to sort of leave at the, at the, at the uh, parking lot, if you will? Well, that's a, you know, a, an always a great one to start off on because, you know, every beginning of every round is, a, is basically a start over. Um, you know, and I like to have them think that each hole is a start over. So you're going to take them one hole at a time. It's actually one shot at a time. And so, you know, on the very first hole, the thing that uh, I'm going to tell them to do is, you know, you have to have confidence with the club you have in your hand that you can put it in play. And so not always is that going to be a driver from the first hole, depending on, you know, what what type of hole you're playing. But grab a club that you're confident in and that you can picture the shot that you're going to hit, that you can can make it happen. Um, I know that as as I have them warm up, uh, if, if I'm with them before they're going to go play, the last several shots I'll have them hit is with a, a driver, and it's basically just to see if we can use it on the first hole. I mean, how is it performing on the range? And if it's not performing as well as you want to, you get on that first tee, and there's always a little bit of nerves on the first tee. So if that uh, club wasn't behaving on the range, now you get a little bit nervous. It's probably not going to be uh, as good as you like it to be. So pick something that you have some confidence in, something with a little bit more loft on it, and something that can ease you into the round and get you started. And that's really what, what you have to do. You know, you've got to ease yourself into the round. You'll picture the shots you're trying to hit. Select the club that you know you can hit that picture with. I know there's a lot of times that, you know, players will picture a shot and then they grab a club and, and they really don't have much of a chance of hitting what they pictured. You know, so you have to make sure that those two match. Um, you know, and especially early on in the season, you know, when you haven't really done that much, if you're coming out of out of the winter, and you know, you got to you got to set your expectation levels down. Um, you've you've got to remember that you haven't had a lot of time to practice, 
And so, you know, take some loft. Loft is always something great to have off the tee. And, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, you've, you talked about tempo earlier. I mean, that's a great thing to have. You know, I challenge them all to, you know, whatever speed that you swing off the first tee on, try to slow that down until you finish because it usually goes mm-hmm. the other way. You know, they tee off, right. and then by the time they get to the sixth hole, they're swinging out of their shoes, and they don't even realize it yet. But I tell them, try to, try to slow it down on each shot as you move along so you can keep a consistent, you know, pace that you're going at. But, yeah, I think, you know, visually you need to look at uh, what you're up against. You know, there's always, you know, things out in the fairway. Are there fairway bunkers, water hazards? You know, you always want to, to, to look at those. And, you know, take a club that you can you can keep yourself steered away from them. But, again, you know, hit something that you've got some confidence in uh, off that first tee, and uh, it'll, it'll always help you ease into the round. And, you know, like you said before, you, you sort of have to have a short memory. And so, you know, things aren't always going to go uh, as you planned. Um, and when they don't, that's all right. You get to start over. That's the nice thing about golf. You get 18 starts. You get to start over. Yep. So you always got a chance to start again. And so, you know, keep it that way. And, and um, you know, I think you'll have a better overall outlook uh, as you as you go around, just making sure that you can play within yourself a little bit. And uh, especially early on in the season, you know, put your expectations down a, a notch. And uh, just remember that uh, you've got some time to work and to, to build yourself into what you're going to be doing for that season. Yeah, and especially that, that's a, some great points. You know, especially Sue, if you know you're starting out, um, maybe you've played for a number of years and you're a pretty good golfer. But you know, we all get a little bit rusty when we've been sitting on the sofa or the couch or what have you uh, for a few mm-hmm. months and we haven't had the opportunity to get out there. Um, and, and another thing too, um, and I want to move on to the next step, and that is really um, blocking out distractions um, when you're setting up to make your shot, as an example. Uh, or you're getting ready to, to uh, you know, it's your turn, if you will. And a lot of times there's all kinds of distractions, everything from nature, you know, whether it be birds or what have you, or golf par- uh, carts driving past or other. Uh, sometimes people in your group um, are chattering a little bit. And so there's a lot of distractions. Um, so you need to practice sort of being in that mental zone. And I think a great way to do that, and I want you to touch on this a little bit, is, is really having a solid pre-shot routine because that kind of helps get you in the zone. So maybe you could touch a little bit on that um, and how important that is to make sure that that's solid uh, for when you come out uh, and, and start a new season. Yeah, and I think the the everybody has their own little, uh, I want to say pre-shot routine, but I think it's very important to have a pre-shot routine. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in creating your own. And so I teach my players is that um, – People have probably already heard of Vision 54, and they have what's called a play box, a think box and a play box. And in the pre-shot routine, we talked about the caddy box, which is the think box, which means all you're doing is you're receiving information from the target. What do you want to do? Set your plan. Think about what kind of club you want to hit. Go, for, you know. And then between the the caddy box and the play box, we have a commitment line make the commitment that, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then once you, st- once, you, once you start and step into the play box, which is basically over the ball, you are actually going to go play and create the shot. So you're not going to be thinking about the shot anymore. It's about playing and being in the right side of your brain. So I teach a lot of my players, a lot of the players that are very left brain, 
they have a tendency to be standing over over the ball thinking about their mechanics. And so I teach them so from from the caddy box to the play box is you can go ahead and think about the shot when you're in the caddy box, but when you step into that play box, it's all about execution and it's it's time to go. So a lot of my left, really high left, um, what I call left brainers, is because they think too structurally and too analytical. So I just tell them the best way to get out of your out of your left brain is to hum, because when you're humming over the ball, you can't think about okay, what's my grip doing? What's my backswing going to do? What's this going to do? So I ask them, what's, you know, what's your favorite song? And let's try just humming your favorite song and hit some shots and see what happens. And to their surprise, they're like, wow, I never even, now I don't have to think about mechanics. And I said, that's correct. You don't, we don't want you to think about mechanics when you're in the, cat, in the play box. We want you to play. We want you to swing. And we want you to be on the right side of your brain. Because when you're on the right side of your brain, you're more creative and you're more fluid and things happen naturally instead of you thinking about how to do it. So it happens a lot easier for a lot of players when they work, like you said, the pre-shot routine, and then getting out of their left brain when they're over the ball. And that's one of the crucial, one of the crucial things that you know I teach my, all my players is like, okay, we don't want to be thinking about how to hit the shot over the ball. We want to be in, in regard to execution mode. So we want to be in play mode. We want to be in swing mode. We're not thinking about how to do it. And that's what, that's what I teach a lot of my players when they stand over the ball and say, here's your pre-shot routine. We, we teach them what the caddy box is all about, and then we teach them what the play box is all about. And they don't, that way they're not confused about, okay, what am I supposed to be doing? So that's what I teach them. And they're like, oh, I never really thought about it that way. <laughs> and they have a lot, of fun, a lot more fun doing it because, you know, they're not thinking about how to hit the shot. Yeah, and that's a great point as well because, <clears throat> again, a lot of, especially your amateur golfers, get so caught up and wrapped up on trying to think, of, you know, I've got to make sure this arm's tucked in this way and I've got to make sure I swing it this way mm-hmm. uh, when they're standing over the ball. And nine times out of ten, they're thinking about things that are really not that important. And it's okay to think about those things in a practice session when you're working with your, your swing coach or what have you and, you know, you're focusing on uh, and, and working on drilling down on areas that need improvement. But then when you get out in the golf mm-hmm. course and you're actually playing now, uh, again, and that's a great, uh, you know, way to, to sort of distract yourself in a good way. And, you know, whether humming a song, mm-hmm. that you, you know, obviously you want to make sure the cadence is not too fast. You don't want to be humming, a, um, you know, something that's really, really quick and get your, your, your movement going uh, or too slow. So you want to find something that's mm-hmm. got sort of a, I think, a natural uh, – uh, steady rhythm, but um, uh, but you know that's very interesting because you know again you're distracting the player in a sense, not thinking about all those mechanics, and they can just go out there and let their body do what what is naturally designed to do. So I think that's a great point um, and, and uh, for you to make, and and uh, thank you for that, um, Pete. Mm-hmm. I want to go to to the next the next step, and and this is what I know we've talked about before on the show, and. It's something really that all golfers should do throughout the entire season, but especially in the beginning of the season. Um, you know, we want them obviously out there and, and working with their coaches and stuff. But I think it's important that they take notes, um, and you can get into a little bit more specifics of what I'm talking about, but sort of jotting down certain statistics and things as they're playing their round and, 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 and gathering that vital data that they can then take back when they go to their – uh, next uh, coaching session or next teaching session 
that uh, he or she can discuss it with their with their swing coach or, or their teaching professional. Um, but I think it's good to keep that information because it gives them a gauge at the beginning of the season to work from. Um, what are your thoughts here? And, and maybe you can expand a little bit more. That's a great way to do it. You know, I, I always tell them, you know, as you play around the golf, you know, the scorecard, you know, you can you can add little uh, sections down there for, you know, keeping some stats and, and some things that uh, are, are going along pretty well. But I always like them when they finish the round to write down what happened. Go back and look over the round and what mm-hmm. were the positives, what were the negatives. Where did you fare well, where did you not fare very well. So that we can go back through and run through that entire round and start to figure out, okay, you know, what is really giving you trouble versus what you think is giving you trouble as far as scoring goes. Because sometimes, you know, they think it's one area, but that's really not what's keeping them from scoring. It's something else. And so I like them to jot, jot down, you know, as they go through. And, you know, it's a challenge because you're going to have to remember what you did, you know. So I know we, mm-hmm. we always try to get them to, to go from one hole to the next. But, you know, I, I like them to, to, to really take the notes and, and write down what's going on, especially, especially the rounds where they struggle. Because I'd, I'd like to know not only what's, what's happening in the scoring and, and the different types of shots that they hit, but, but what were you thinking about when you were going through these, these, these lows and also the highs? And usually when, they're, when they have the high points, when they're playing well, they'll say, well, I don't know what I was thinking, which is pretty much they weren't. And so, you know, it, it really gives them an advantage. But, you know, I, I, I'm a big, big proponent of taking notes. Um, if, if you would watch me play, I've got notes all over the scorecard because I'm always writing stuff down as, as far as what's going on and, and um, you know, tracking different things. And, you know, it also depends on, you know, what they, what they really value in the round. So are they looking for more of, of just stats as far as, you know, putts and, you know, up and downs and those types of things? Or are they just looking for a, a different type of notation as to, you know, what was I thinking? What was I doing? What was my process? Um, you know, so we can take notes in many different directions as far as what's going on. But I, I like them to walk me back through the round and, and really give me a, an idea and, you know, sort of like, you know, we're going to go radio here, but you've got to help me picture what went on in the round. You know, there's no cameras, but you've got you to help me visualize what happened. And so the, the more notes they can take as soon as they're done playing, you know, it's easier because they're going to remember more. But you know, they can also jot stuff down on the scorecard as they're going around. Um, sometimes I'll give them, you know, a little small, you know, those little small spiral notebooks, you know, and take one of those, put it in your back pocket where your scorecard or your yardage book would go and, you know, use that, flip through it, mm-hmm. write a few things down as you're going along. But, yeah, I, I think it's a great thing to, to take notes because, you know, from one session to the next, you know, you can build on that process. Um, you can go back and look at those notes and say, man, look where I came from. And, you know, what we're, we're looking at, the, you know, the thought process we had in March, and now look at the thought process in June. It's totally different. You know, so you have a little track record of them looking at uh, the things that they wrote down. And, um, you know, you can sort of keep that in a little book and keep it in the back of your mind. And, you know, and even today, you know, I tell them, too, you can even take your, you know, take your smartphone, and it's got a, it's got mm-hmm. a voice memo on it. You know, you can chat. You know, you can just, you know, each hole, you can, you can voice over what you're doing. You know, so any way to get some notation, whether it's voice memos or whether it's writing it down, is, is a great way to go about it because it's only going to give you more and more fuel, uh, you know, just to make you better as you move along. And so you can understand throughout the rounds, you know, 
you know, you, 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 they'll see commonalities too where they play well and they don't play well. And you can also break it down a lot of times too with certain types of holes, the way the holes are built sometimes give them trouble, you know, so we can start to see that type of, of uh, you know, visualization as they're going around there too. Cause some holes, they, they don't look at them like they should look at them. And, um, you know, sometimes they give them trouble, you know, especially with, with, you know, to me, water is always something that's going to give them, give them trouble. You know, it's, it's funny when you put somebody on a tee and, and they start to aim and you can just see before they get to hit it, they're aiming further and further away from that water. You know, it's, it's an influence. But, you know, I think as you, as you take the time to look at your rounds and, and get that knowledge into you, uh, not only while you're playing, but when you're finished, I think all of that background information can be a great building block um, as you move forward and uh, begin to practice and, and, you know, try to improve on what you're doing. Yeah, I, I agree with, with everything that you just said. Um, so many, you know, players out there have the opportunity really to help themselves by gathering up this information. Um, and so I'm going to get to you in a second. But I also want to add, you know, for those of you that are maybe a little more tech savvy, um, again, as you mentioned, Pete, your smartphone or, or iPhone, whatever you have, uh, there's a lot of great apps out there now that can actually uh, monitor and help you gather a lot of important vital statistics um, right while you're playing uh, during your round. And the great thing about it is if you're working with a teacher professional or coach, uh, that can be shared with them in real time in some cases, or it can be stored and saved up and can be shared with them uh, during your next session. So there's really no excuse. If you're somebody that's maybe not as, as technically savvy and don't want to do that format, that's okay. You can do it as, as uh, what Pete suggested, and that is just jotting some notes on a scorecard or on a, uh, a small uh, pad of paper that you can carry in the back pocket. So there's no real excuse for not being able to, to take and jot down that information uh, during your round. And you can also make some notes, too, when you're doing a private, uh, your own practice session when you're not with your coach. Make some notes of what's happening on the range as well. So it's always a good idea to gather that information. becomes uh, very useful uh, for whoever it is that you're taking lessons from. Uh, and that is really what I want to talk about with you, or have you talk about, Sue, is once they've done uh, what, what Pete's just talked about and they're now coming to you, uh, whether it's through an app or whether it's through their own, uh, you know, jotting these notes down, that gives you some vital information to do a number of different things. It not only tells you where they're at, it gives you an idea of how they progress throughout uh, their game, maybe over a few sessions, uh, but it also gives you an idea to put together a solid plan to attack areas, for lack of better words, that they need the most help with. Because a lot of, as Pete mentioned, a lot of people don't really know what they need to work on. They just guess or they hear a few buzzwords. Somebody says, well, I need to work on my short game. Well, maybe it's not their entire short game. So maybe you could walk us mm -hmm. through a little bit when you work with students and you've got them you know, coming to you with, with some information or they're discussing uh, their game a little bit with you and they're showing you what's been going on, then you can sort of help them put something together. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the, what I always do is when the player comes back to me after a round, the first thing I ask them, I said, I will always ask them, what was good about it, number one? So let's focus on the positive. And then we talk about that. And then I'll say, okay, what could have been better? And then we go through, and it might have been putting. You know, it's like, okay, I three-putted on a couple holes. I'll say, okay, so then we kind of evaluate and we kind of break that down. 
And then I asked more specific questions like, okay, so what do you think caused the three putt? Was it a distance control or was it a, was it a directional issue? And so we break it down in, in that sense. So when they get done playing, that's what I always do. I always go back to them and saying, okay, what was good about it? Let's focus on the positive. But then we're going to go back and break it down to like, okay, if it's short game, what do you think was causing the short game? Was it a bad lie? Was it a distance issue? Was it, you know, did you pick the wrong club? Um, so we kind of break it down in regards to what could have been better in, in, in that sense. And it might be full swing, you know, it might have been, okay, they come to me and said, you know, my driver could have been better. Then I just get a little bit more specific to them saying, okay, what happened when you, you know, when you did hit your driver? Was it like slicing? Was it hooking? What, you know, tell me a little bit more about that. And then we, then we kind of discuss about, you know, um, the, again, we go back to a little bit of pre-shot routine. How do you think your pre-shot routine worked in regards to that particular shot? Or, um, you know, breaking it down in the sense that was you, were you thinking about mechanics over the ball or were you thinking about the target? You know, so I ask more specific questions, try to figuring out kind of where their mindset is when they're, when they're what, what I want to say, when they're struggling. So then that way I can figure out, okay, are you struggling within the short game? Are you struggling with your full swing? You're struggling with your mindset? You know, we can we can kind of break it down in, in that sense. And so asking questions, specific questions, um, you know, how how could we get better? Meaning, okay, is it a, is it a putting issue? Is it a chipping issue? Is it a full swing issue? And then we then we kind of go deeper into diving because it might be a situational issue too. You know, the, mm-hmm. the the ball might have been in the, in a bunker and it might have been buried, and we had no no idea how to get a get a buried shot out of the bunker. For example, maybe they've never had that before. Um, but you never know. So that's why I always ask. We go into a little bit deeper questions going through um, to get a little bit better idea of what happened out there when they were playing. But I always like to focus on, okay, how do we get better? You know, what, what, what's the, what, do we, what do you think you need to focus on in order to get better in regards to that particular area, whether or not it's putting, chipping, pitching, full swing? Um, and then we just, like I said, we ask more specific questions, and then we kind of look at um, what happened in that, let's say, a certain scenario that comes up when they were out there that they weren't comfortable with, and they just they didn't know what to do, or maybe they were guessing on, well, let me try this. And a try trying mm-hmm. is not a good word for when we're playing golf. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. We, we want to be, yeah, we want to be committed when we're standing over a golf ball, uh, no matter what shot it is. So, um, and I listen to their language because I want to find out what their focus is, you know, is, you know, okay, I tried to do this and I said, okay, so let's talk about the word try. Maybe we weren't committed over, over the golf shot, um, for example. So again, it's a little bit of a mindset, but it also is, you know, how are we going to, how are we going to get better? So what could have been better? Um, and, and we just, you know, like I said, we just dive a little bit deeper into the situation and find out exactly kind of what, what happened. Um, and then we, then as a coach, as a coach and a player, we have that, we have that dialogue in, in the sense that, okay, how we, how, how do you think you could have changed it? For example, what, what could have changed it? What could have changed the outcome in, in, in that sense? And we kind of just talk about it. And maybe maybe they don't know, and that's where a coach comes in and says, "Okay, so in this case scenario, 
maybe it was a pitch shot and it was 30 yards away and you chunked it and it only went 10 yards. So let's talk about that. So go back to that situation. Was the ball sitting up? Was the ball sitting down? You know, get into a little bit more um, specifics to find out so that you can give them, it's a learning opportunity saying, okay, next time in this situation, this is what we should be doing, for example. And, again, it depends on, um, you know, the situation. If it's putting, chipping, you know, full swing, you don't know what it is. But that's what I like. I just have this philosophy of, okay, what was good, what was better, or how could we get better, or what could have got, what could have been better in the round. And then we talk about the, those situations that – that um, weren't so great, but how could it get better? And then we kind of like, we just go through um, the, you know, again, pre-shot routine. We go through about the case scenario about if it is the ball laying down, is the ball laying up, what, you know, it depends on the um, the scenario of the shot, that's for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of variables that, that can be uh, given. And, and the truth is, to be honest, guys, that most average golfers out there really don't know what their problems are. They guess a lot of things. And when I, when I look at the statistics, what I'm looking for are what are the problem areas. Uh, before I break it down into um, whether it's a plug lie in a sand bunker or whether it's a chipping problem or a pitching problem, is I'm trying to isolate what the overall problem is. And what I always hear from people is, well, if I could just hit it further, if I could just hit the ball further, I know I could lower my scores. <laughs> And the truth of the matter is, that's not the case. I would rather no. hit the ball consistently with, with irons or whatever, 150 yards. If I knew I could take up my seven iron and I could hit it 150 yards every, or, you know, give or take a yard, every single time, mm-hmm. I can play virtually any golf course and score par or even better um, yeah. if other parts of my game fall into suit. The problem is that most people don't know. They guess at a lot of things or somebody's told them, well, maybe if you just did this. And I'm not talking about from a professional level. I'm talking about there's their foursome says, well, you know, Frank, yeah. you're not really, you know, chipping too well and whatever. So they listen to a lot mm-hmm. of their buddies. So when I look at the stats, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for specific weak areas. And then I look for their strong strengths as well. And then what I do is mm-hmm. I try to marry the two together. So I say, okay, here's where we want to focus on. So Again, as you pointed out, Sue, let's dial down specifically on some of the faults that they're having struggling with. Is it a technique problem? <laughs> is it an issue of not understanding how to uh, accomplish what it is they want to do? Or is it just you know, a poor technique? Or they're just um, not putting enough effort and time practicing those areas to, to become solid at it? So there's a lot of different variables <laughs> that need to be factored in there. And that's why that information is not only valuable for the student, but particularly it's valuable for us. Uh, because, again, as Pete mm-hmm. pointed out earlier, you know, unless we're there with a camera or, or you know, a spy satellite over top, we're not seeing what's going on when they're out playing with their buddies. So we have to rely right. on what information they bring us. And if they just come back and say, well, you know what, I played last uh, Wednesday afternoon, and I've got to be honest, Ted, I suck. I really stunk on the golf course. <laughs> well, that doesn't tell me anything. Um, so I want a little more information. And, and uh, you know, forgive me for being so blunt. Um, but it's Thursday night well, and we're on Coach's say. Corner. You're, you're dead on. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Thursday night in Coach's Corner. Um, but, you know, but that's the truth. And, and, and you know, it's, uh, uh, you know it, it's just one of these things that, you know, we, we, we try so hard as, as golf professionals to, to help people out. 
And we all have our own struggles and our own games. I don't care how long you've been teaching this game. We all from time to time have struggles. You know, I was talking on Tuesday with uh, my good friend and co-host on Women of Golf, uh, Cindy Miller, who I know you both know, LPGA professional Cindy Miller. She's played on both Mm -hmm. the LPGA and she's played on the Legends Tour as well. And her whole career, she's had struggles out in the golf course of her own. And she talks about it very openly, and yet she's a a phenomenal uh, LPGA teacher professional and is very well respected within Mm -hmm. the industry. Um, Partially because, not just because she knows what she's talking about, but she's experienced it herself. And, you know, Mm -hmm. she's gone through some of those struggles earlier on, and as we all do. So that's why it's important that we get as much information. And something that we didn't talk about here, and I'm just going to touch on real briefly, and then I want to move over and talk a little bit about tempo and things, as I mentioned. Um, You know, I think it's important for anybody coming out Um, even if you've been playing for a long time, when you come out at the beginning of a season, that you get a a new assessment, that you get assessed, you go to your your local golf professional if you've worked with him before, if not, you seek one out and find somebody that you're comfortable with, have a conversation with him or her, and you say, look, this is what I'm I'm wanting to do, I want to improve my game, and have them put you through an assessment. And let's find out where you're at, because again, they're not seeing you play, they're not, you know, they can see hit a few golf shots on the range, but it doesn't really tell them all they need to know. So they need to put you through a proper assessment. So that's first and foremost what you want to do when you come out this at the beginning of a season is go and get assessed and find out where your game is right now because it doesn't matter what you shot last year. You know, you might have played Pinehurst last year and, and scored fantastic <laughs> on, on uh, you know, number two and number four. Um, but, you know, five months went by and you've been sitting in the lazy boy chair and you've been slurping back uh, – uh, you know, uh, a few frappuccinos and eating a few donuts, and now you're coming out and you're sitting, well, what happened to my golf game? So, mm-hmm. you know, get assessed, work with your professional, get a game plan to start the season off. Uh, and I think that's what we have to do um, as instructors. So we've really got to encourage, it's not about making money, and it's not about, well, you just want to charge me more. No, it's about if you're going to be serious about your game, then you've got to do some serious steps. And one of those steps is to isolate and find out what the problems are because we can't improve your game. I don't care how, whether it's some of the top 100 teachers or top 50 teachers, top 25, whatever. They cannot improve your game if they don't know what they're dealing with. So you need to yeah. make sure you take those steps to do that. And I think you would both agree with that, correct? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, because people have expectations that they just can come with what they had before. And as you know, life changes, our body changes, our mental Mm -hmm. state changes, many things change. And so I think that the assessment gives you a starting point to the the beginning of of the new season. And I think that's what's really important to give people um, real information, saying, okay, this is where you were. This is how you are today. It's okay where you are today. Doesn't mean you have to. Doesn't mean you went backwards. It just means this is who you are today, and that's okay. And then that way, yeah. we just move forward from there. Yeah, well said. Yeah, for sure. You know, and and yeah, and you're and you're exactly right. You know, Sue, so we change. You know, our bodies change. Um, you know, Lord only knows. I'm I've changed. I mean, I've I've walked into. I walked into a, a furniture store a few years ago, and I was standing there, and there was a mirror. And I looked, and I said, man, that guy in the, in the, in the background is losing, losing his hair a little bit up top. 
And then I realized it was a reflection <laughs> of me in another mirror. And I thought to myself, you know, man, I gotta, I gotta start wearing a hat or something. But anyway, I'm just teasing. But, uh, but you know, we, we all change, and and you're right. It's, it's. Um, mm-hmm. I, I gotta add a little humor in the beginning of the season. So, um, but anyway, oh, uh, all, all kidding aside, gotta have, some, gotta have some fun on the panel here. Um, but, you know, we we have to get get serious with our students and and express to them the importance of being able to come out and uh, because really if, if they're not going to be serious about it and really put in the effort then they're not only wasting their time but they're wa- let's be honest they're wasting our times as well because there's the you know there's thousands upon thousands of people out there that do really want to improve their game and if they're not willing to go through the paces to do that then they're just wasting their time and money and uh, then it you know it reflects poorly on us because it looks like wow hey you didn't help me do my game well you know how many times did you go out and practice some of the things that we talked about well none so there you go all right we're going to move on to tempo i'm jumping off my soapbox now we're going to get back into the discussion um and let my guests do some talking here so i apologize for you listeners out there all right so let me first uh, do this what is the proper swing tempo so there is no exact number that's going to define the perfect golf swing tempo however there is a ratio that seems to lead uh, to the highest level of success when it comes to the swing tempo in a golf swing. So the golf swing tempo ratio would be that it takes you three times as long to swing the club back as it does to swing the club down. So, for instance, if a player starts at the address position, they could count to three during their backswing. However, from the top of the backswing down to the ball, they should only be able to count one. So that's kind of a ratio, and that's true because, you know, you want to go back kind of slow and smooth. You don't want to snatch it. You don't want to race it back. But then as you go through to hit the ball, uh, or swing through the ball, rather, uh, it's a very quick pace, and it's really, um, you shouldn't really get much more than one. Um, you know, if you're one, two, or three, uh, then you're in big trouble. So, so how do you get to a proper swing tempo? So, um, Pete, I'm going to go back to you on this one here, and I think it's to relax at the setup is the number one thing. Um, and, and maybe you can touch on a little bit about that, because everybody's nerves get in, you know, they're tense, they're um, and this sort of falls into the second one a bit, so I'll let you do both of them. But, uh, you know, check your grip. Um, if you're squeezing the thing like a, you know, like a jackhammer and, and uh, you know, your arms are bulging in, with veins and stuff, um, you've got a pretty tight grip, and that's going to affect your setup. So maybe you could touch a little bit on both. Well, absolutely. You know, as you watch tournament players, and we've all watched them on TV, you know, there's a lot of movement that they go through before they hit it. They're always kind of moving around, and that's to help keep them relaxed. And so they don't get, uh, you know, sedentary and sitting in there. And, you know, you know, we've always said when you, when you watch somebody on the first tee and, and uh, you see them set up and then you get distracted, you look back and you look over, they're still standing over it. You know something's going on. It's giving them time to think of 900 things before they take off. But you want to keep moving and, and you know, keep everything light. And you don't have to keep the, the – the, so you're not holding on to it, but you, you don't, like you said, you don't want to squeeze it. You should have a, you know, a, enough of a pressure that you can move the club around, a little bit of a waggle, but they used to, you, know, you don't hear that term much anymore, but, um, you know, you, you just watch the tournament players, whether their feet are moving or their knees are kind of moving, and you can you see them, they're, they're just kind of settling in uh, to their setups, and then once they get set, they go. You know, there's no waiting around. And so, you know, it's, it's really where you can build yourself a routine to, to keep yourself relaxed, um, you know, get yourself comfortable. Um, but also, don't make it take too long. 
you know, you don't want to be sitting over that ball too long because the longer, as I said, the longer you sit over it, the more things that can that can enter into the process. You know, so so start working it. You know, if if you have some trouble where you feel tense, you know, get a little bit of movement as you're setting into it. You know, just a little bit of a waggle. Move the club a little bit. You know, move your feet a little bit up and down. You know, just keep some some motion, some movement going on. You know, you watch. Um, you know, another uh, another example. You watch. You know, really really good free throw shooters. You know, they don't hold the ball. You know, they they bounce it a couple of times. They bring it up and they go. I mean, you don't see them just hold the ball there and hold it and hold it and hold it and, hold it and, hold, and then they shoot. No, they, they've got some natural rhythm and motion in there, and you can you incorporate that same thing into your setup to where, you, you know, you just get yourself settled down a little bit. And I think if you're moving a little bit, it helps take the tension out, um, you know, waggle the club. You'll see some of the players will, will actually take and set the club, you know, partway in the backswing as, as a reminder of where they're trying to go. Um, and then some of it's just, you know, it's just the motion to, to keep the tension out. But I, I think that's a great thing to do, and I think that's going to preset the overall, as you said, tempo of your swing. You've got to get yourself in a situation, that address where you can move. And I think the longer you sit there, the more tension you create, and then it's, it's just harder to get going. And then that backswing just sort of, you know, takes off in a hurry and when it shouldn't because you're, you're not ready to go. So I think if you could just, you know, get yourself into a, a little bit of motion before you take off, you know, you can you can move around, but then once you're settled, you know, settle yourself and then go, you know, go ahead and hit it. Um, you know, I've always been one. I think that it it will also not only help you play better golf, but also help you play faster golf. It'll keep you moving around the golf course because you, so you're not sitting over too many shots. But um, I've always been a big big proponent of of just keeping a little bit of motion keeping a little bit of rhythm, keeping, you know, get the tension out. And I think then once you're set, you can take off. Yeah, and that, those are some great points. And I want to just throw in a couple of quick tips on, on both of those points uh, for the golfers. First one is, um, is you want to make sure that you take a deep breath, um, you know, uh, before you address the ball. Because holding, you know, you'd be surprised at how many golfers hold their breath when they're standing over the ball. Um, and what happens is that actually builds tension. You need to continue breathing. You need to breathe, and you need, there's actually um, proper breathing techniques, if you will, that can help you uh, because if you're holding your breath, that invites tension into your body. And when you're breathing naturally, because you have to breathe, otherwise if you hold your breath, you're going to go blue, and eventually you'll keel over. So you want to make sure that you take a good deep breath before you address the ball, and you want to continue to breathe. And then as you pointed out, Pete, you want to keep moving. You know, Jack Nicholas always talked about this in his uh, video, Golf My Ways. He always had that waggle. He kept his feet moving. Um, he didn't get them out of position, but he would just sort of, you know, get, get them moving slightly in that so that he would have a constant moving. Then he would waggle the club, and then he pulled the trigger. He never really stopped his movement um, until a, literally a second before uh, he was about ready to swing the club. And that was, again, as you get to keep his body limber and keep it moving. The other thing with the grip as well is make sure that your grip, uh, the club, uh, is not tight. Uh, if you need to take your hands off and put them back on, that is acceptable as well. Obviously, you want to be conscious of time and your player, fellow players around you that you're not you know, uh, running into a situation where you're taking too much time. But make sure your golf uh, grips have plenty of uh, grip left, so make sure that you get them changed out at the beginning of a season. If you've been using them, they're, they're getting a little slick, so you want to make sure there's plenty of grip left on them. Uh, so that you can loosen your hands with confidence and the club will stay in place. Um, you don't have to, you know, uh, they always say a scale to 1 in 10, what do you want to feel the grip? I think about a 5 
to a six is is plenty. I think any more than that, you're you're inviting tension, and I think any less than that, then you're going to be whipping the club down the fairway. So those are a couple of tips that you can do. Take a deep breath, keep the body in motion, as Pete said, and then make sure that your your grips on your golf club uh, are are kept up to snuff, that they're not getting loose and and uh, that they're not getting slick, and then also make sure that you're not gripping the club too tight. Sue, I'm going to jump on to you in this, and, and Pete talked a little bit about this, but this is something that uh, two areas that I want to uh, throw into your uh, circle here, and that is sort of a, a low and slow on the way back. Um, I watched the Q series this uh, past December uh, here in, in Alabama and uh, watched uh, a lot of the young uh, girls that were trying to earn their uh, LPGA Tour cards, and it was amazing how many of them really sort of sort of a, that low and slow in their backswing, and then they just fired. And they would just, shot after shot would just be perfect. Um, and they weren't trying to snatch the club as we talked about. Um, and the other thing, too, is um, a lot of people don't realize this, but there is a slight pause at the top. So when you get to the top of the backswing, there is a slight pause before you transition into your downswing. Could you talk about those two areas just a little bit? I apologize. I think. Yep. Oh. Sorry, Sue. Did you hear my question? Yep, I heard you. Are you there? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Sorry. You. Yeah. You got bumped off. I guess. Go ahead. Yep. We're good. Um, yeah, and that's one of the things is I know the PGA Tour did a study on on the timing of the swing, meaning how long from the time that they stand over the ball to the time that they actually swing and hit a hit a shot average it was about no more it was an average of six to eight seconds meaning okay when you're standing over the ball if you're going beyond eight seconds you are thinking too much if you're going if you're going to hit a shot before six seconds you're trying to hit it a little too quick so they actually did that study in the, the average tour um player once they once they stand over the ball, it's a six to eight seconds, and boom, they go. So that's one of the things that, again, I teach one of my players, all my players, is like there's a routine in regards to that. If you're standing over the golf ball more than eight seconds, you've got to get away from it because you're going to change the way you're going to swing. If you go, you know, and we do, we I test them. We we take a little stopwatch and you know with our our funny smartphones and things. And then we look at it and saying, okay, you're going to stand over the ball. Again, it's part of the, it's teaching them that pre-shot routine and the rhythm of the whole thing. And that rhythm creates their own tempo. And just like you said before, it's, it's a tempo issue. And everybody has, you know, a little bit, a little bit of different tempo. And that's okay, too. And you're right about the backswing. It's low and slow. And then it's, then it's go. So it's, you don't have to... Um, what I want to say, think so much about, okay, how do I take it back, um, you know, in regards to, and you're right, there's a pause at the top, um, and a lot of people don't know that. They think they're supposed to, like, transition or, you know, whip it down really fast, and that's not true. Um, so, yeah, there's just a, a, a lot of things that a lot of people have perceptions of what's supposed to happen because of what they see on television, um, and that's why I love having... You know, when you go back and you have slow motion cameras kick back into the scene with some of the tour players and they show exactly what's happening. Um, 
and that's what technology has really done. It's really, you know, advanced our sport because of all those things that you can, you know, really look at on television uh, with the slow motion cam- cameras and stuff. But in regards to, like I said, with the tempo, um, I think it's really important that you teach them, okay, pre-shot routine, once you step over into that play box, you got six to eight seconds, hit the shot and go. And that way they're not thinking, again, it's all about um, they get too wrapped up in thinking about how to hit the shot. And that's why I teach all my players, all right, let's get this pre-shot, um, pre-shot um, routine down and be consistent. Um, and, yeah, that can change here and there because a lot of the times people have different thoughts about different things when they're over different shots. But, again, when you're over the ball, we want to be, okay, ready, set, and go. And it's like mm-hmm. I teach my players all the time. It's six to eight seconds. If you're if you're gone, if you're over the you know if you're over the eight seconds, we need to get you out of there because something's going to change before you hit that golf shot. So, and and that's why I teach all of my players. It's like you know, like I said, with a pre-shot routine, getting them into that um, caddy box and that play box, um, and because the tempo helps them stay balanced, and that's one of the things I talk about with my all my players is. You know, you got to start on balance and you got to finish on balance if you want a good shot. And some people, you know, don't have good balance in the beginning, and that's what we have to work on. Um, you know, teach them what what good balance is. And like I said, with the, the pre-shot routine, we talk about that six to eight seconds all the time because that's really what c- creates tempo or, you know, what I want to say is discourages tempo. So that mm-hmm. six to eight seconds, where I'm telling you, it is it. It's hard because they're like, oh, I never thought about that. You know, because if you're thinking, if you're in the if you're in the play box and you're already past eight seconds, you got to get out because something's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, it, and that raises again another great point too is is, and we see this with professionals all the time, is if they get over the shot and there's either a distraction or something's happened or they're just not feeling uh, as comfortable as they did a second ago, um, they step mm-hmm. back and they go through the routine again. And they never, yeah. you know, stand over. Now, I remember they joked a lot about um, uh, Sergio Garcia uh, quite a bit because he got into a, a habit there for a while where he was just standing over and gripping and re-gripping and he was taking so long mm-hmm. that they started mm-hmm. putting him on the clock because he was just there forever. Um, but I think it goes to a, a bigger point as well. And, and I think that is, you're exactly right. When you're over the shot, the decision has already been made. You've already made the decision, the shot that you need to make. You've already yeah. analyzed the situation. You already know, you know the direction the wind's coming. Now, obviously, if, if things change, if, if those three or four factors like, you know, you've taught, uh, sprinkled a little grass up in the air and you're seeing the wind's coming into your face from the left, so you know that it's going to mm-hmm. uh, be a left-to-right wind, uh, so you know you have to play for that. Um, if all of a sudden mm-hmm. the wind stops uh, or picks up or gusts up, you may want to need to step back and reassess. But that's what you do outside of, the, as you said, that play box. Once you step into mm-hmm. the play box, you've already made committed. You've already picked the club that you're going to hit. You already understand the conditions. You know the distance that you're going to have to hit the ball. Um, and mm-hmm. all of those decisions have already been made. And if you're now all of a sudden trying to make them in that play box, then you're second-guessing mm-hmm. yourself, and that brings Absolutely. doubt, and, and, and that really leads to a lack of confidence. And, Pete, I know that you've mentioned this many times before, is if the player's not confident over the golf ball, 
um, then they're going to just continually to make uh, more and more mistakes. And this is where if you're comfortable, uh, and I know this is sort of outside of the tempo uh, discussion, but uh, it adds to a little bit to what Sue was talking about, is if you're not comfortable over the ball, then obviously you haven't really resolved the decision that you made before that step. In other words, you're not confident in yourself that you made the right decision. You're second-guessing yourself. Am I right? Well, there's no question. You know, it, it, you have to have, you know, you've got to trust what you see. You've got to trust what you feel. And then, you know, once you've made that decision, you know, you've got to go with it. But if you're second-guessing yourself, like you said, then, you know, you need to start over. You know, don't just stand there and, and try to try to go. Um, you know, you've got to be confident in what you're doing. And I think that goes through to, uh, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll have some people that if they're hitting pitch shots on the golf course and, you know, they're, they're thinking mechanically while they're trying to play, and I'll ask them, I'll say, well, how often do you practice that? I said, you don't have any confidence in the actual mechanics of the shot, first of all, because you don't practice it. You've got to get that done first because you'll never be able to turn that off on the golf course unless you're confident when you practice it that you can actually do it. And that, that holds true for a lot of different shots. I mean, and that goes back mm-hmm. to, you know, practicing those. And, you know, there's a time to think mechanical move, movements, you know, when you're practicing. But you've got to get some confidence to be comfortable that you can actually pull those shots off so that when you get on the golf course, you don't have to think of, of as you know, Sue said before, of, of how to do it. You can just go ahead and do it. So it's important mm-hmm. that, you know, they understand, you know, that they've, they've got the ability to do those right off the bat and, uh, and you know, the, the confidence in that. And so they can pull them off, you know, whether it's practice or play. But I think, you know, you, you have to have a, a good comfortable and a good positive uh, feel for what you're doing so you, can, so you can pull the shots off. Yeah, and then finally, I'm just going to add this little point here because we're running out of time, but is you want to, um, this goes back to tempo now, is you want to focus on the finish. Uh, the golf swing, uh, again, um, ratio idea can help you uh, try to hit shots, but golfers must remember that the downswing also includes a follow-through. So you want to make mm-hmm. sure that you finish uh, after you've struck the ball and, um, or swung through the ball, rather, so it doesn't end at impact, and we see a lot of golfers do that, especially if they're in a bunker or something, and they'll just sort of plug the, the club into the sand. Now, obviously, there's situations where that might be required, but more often than not, you need to swing through, and they don't. And I've seen that on even uh, out on the fairway where they'll sort of swing, and about uh, a third of the way up through the follow-through, they've just stopped. And then, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what's going to happen. So, you, again, you've got to focus on the finish as well. It's, a swing is... Uh, is, is, has two sides to it. It has a backswing and it has a follow-through. Uh, and the finish mm-hmm. is something that you've done when it's completed. And, uh, again, this is where uh, a lot of people miss the boat. So, uh, you know, you have to, especially with the full swing, you've got to make sure that you keep that rhythm going on both sides of, of, of impact, before impact and then after impact. Now, obviously, there are some little finesse shots that might uh, be a little bit different. But, again, you, you still want to have that rhythm and, and your uh, tempo is something you can work on. And the final thing I want to say uh, as we, we get ready to, to close up here, and, and that is, you know, there, there was a point to really all this. Um, you know, we, we want to help you. We want to help those out there that are listening to the show um, that um, are struggling with their game. It's not about, hey, we want to just charge X, Y, Z. Um, we want to mm-hmm. honestly help you with your game, but you have to meet us part way. And for too long we've seen this where, 
um, you know, everybody's going to the Internet, and, and that's fine to, to get some general information. But you've got to work with somebody, whether you're doing it over an online uh, session or whether you're doing it in person. You've got to find somebody that you're comfortable with that, that sort of speaks your language, and I don't mean literally English to English. I'm talking about that speaks your language, that, that uh, listens to you and, and um, you know, helps draw the information out of you that they need um, and sets you up on an ideal game plan. And golf is meant to be a, a game which is fun. Uh, but it can be equally frustrating if you're not uh, out there. Uh, it's challenging enough, in other words, if you're not out there with the right tools. Well, we have the ability to give you those tools, to take to the golf course, to have that fun. But if you're not willing to put in the effort, um, then there's no point in playing. Um, you're just going to continue to struggle and struggle. So the things that we're talking about on Coach's Corner, and even when some of the guests come on and talk about different things, which my guest coming up here in a few moments uh, is going to be talking, uh, really focusing in on uh, some areas of the, of the mind game, um, those are things that, that are important. It's not just the golf clubs. It's not just swinging the golf club. It's what goes on between the years. Uh, because if you've got that all wrapped up in a, in a tight ball, uh, you're not going anywhere. So... Um, you guys, I really enjoyed tonight's discussion, and I know I got a little silly there for a while, but I hope you don't mind. Um, but um, I, I always always enjoy these uh, Coach's Corner sessions. I enjoy having you guys on, and, and as I always do, I like to give each of you a moment uh, to uh, just share with the audience. And Sue, I know you, I'm going to let you go first, because I know you mentioned off-air uh, that you're uh, starting a new position here or have started a new position. So uh, let the folks know how they can reach out. Tell us a little bit about this new position, and then Pete, you go ahead. Yeah, I'm, um, I took on a new position. I'm up in Payson, Arizona. I'm the new director of golf and uh, director of instruction at um, Payson, Arizona. It's called Payson Golf Club. And, um, yeah, I have a number one best-selling book that's called Golf, The Last Six Inches, How to Change Your Brain, Change Your Game. You can get it on Amazon. Um, and there's a, a performance journal that goes along with it. So, um, yeah, if you if you need some help with the mental stuff, check out the book. Um, and you can get me at uh, my email is swieger at gmail.com or at um, uh, swieg at paceandgolfclub.com as well. And thank you for having Perfect. me. It was great. Uh, I always appreciate it, Sue. Thank you. And Pete, go ahead. What's the best way that folks uh, uh, can reach out to you? Now, they can get me at ppcanongolf.com or stlouisgolflessons.com. Either one will lead you to all of my information and, and everything that's out there. And I just want to say, hey, Ted, thanks again for for, uh, for the, the, having me on again. And Sue, I, I enjoyed the conversations. It's, it's always great to be on with you as well. So thanks again, Ted. Always appreciate it. I always enjoy having you on as well, Pete. And we'll try to have lots of fun this season. It's uh, season 10, as I mentioned before. So I'm always excited to uh, to uh, do something a little bit different each year. So maybe we'll throw a little comedy in there. I might even do some stand-up. Who knows? All right, guys, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Now, that, that'll, that'll be a, a killer. That'll kill the season for sure. Um, but thanks, everybody. Uh, have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next time on the Coach's Corner. All right, all right thanks. Thanks, All right, thanks, guys. All right, before I bring on uh, my special guest, we're going to take a quick uh, pause uh, to hear a message from Golf Tips Magazine. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. 
For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right, welcome back, everybody, and uh, I'm super excited to have my very special guest on this evening. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, and then I'm going to bring him on the show, and we'll get into tonight's discussion. My special guest this evening is Dr. Tom Dorsal. Uh, he's a highly experienced psychologist and serves uh, John Hughes Golf as its sports psychology uh, coach and mental conditioning consultant. Uh, Dr. Tom has over 40 years of experience working with golfers of all skill levels, from the beginner uh, to the professional level, improving their mental and emotional skills on the golf course. Uh, Dr. Tom has written three books, uh, Golf, The Mental Game, Putting Machine, and The Complete Golfer, Physical Skills and Mental Toughness. He's also authored over 100 uh, mental instruction articles for notable publications such as Golf Magazine, Golf Digest, Golf Illustrated, and of course, Golf Week. So please welcome my very special guest this evening to the show, Dr. Tom Dorsal. Good evening, Dr. Tom. How are you? Hello, Ted. I'm fine. Thank you. All right. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on, and I'm looking forward to uh, tonight's discussion. I am too. So I thought what we would do, um, just for those that maybe aren't familiar uh, with you, Tom, is maybe you could tell a little bit about how you got to where you are now. Maybe just sort of give us an overview of how you got involved um, in, in the line of work that you are, and specifically, uh, more importantly, involved in golf. Well, I actually started out as a golfer at age uh, 10, and uh, I, I, don't know the, I, I don't know when the interest in psychology came, but it came early on because I read my first uh, golf psychology book uh, by Peter Cranford called The Winning Touch in Golf, uh, and, and he wrote that in 1962, so I would have been 16 at that time, and I appreciated it very much. And uh, anyway... Uh, Education took me into a desire to major in psychology, uh, which I did. Uh, and uh, so once I was majoring in psychology, when I played golf, I would notice things on the golf course that reminded me of things I was learning in psychology. And then once I actually became a full-blown Ph.D. psychologist and had a college teaching job and was teaching introductory psychology in, in particular, uh, I would often come up with, examples of golf so so on the golf course i was thinking psychology and in the classroom i was teaching psychology but thinking golf lots of times so once i had enough of those kind of ideas i started putting them together and i actually wrote a little book uh, about a hundred page book and i submitted it to golf magazine now, now keep in mind all the time i was an experimental psychologist later became a clinical psychologist uh, so this wasn't my primary line of work but you know, in, in an academic job, you can do research on anything, and I did research mm -hmm. on a whole bunch of different topics, but I pulled in sports psychology along the way, and when I uh, uh, submitted it to Golf Magazine, they said, we're not doing books anymore, but we'll take your second mm -hmm. chapter and make an article out of it. So that was my first article. And, uh, you know, to make a long story short, that was the beginning of many more articles and then, and then books, and then working with players, particularly after I did my clinical psychology postdoctoral work, 
I came back and I pulled experimental psychology and clinical psychology together and, uh, you know, drew on both areas to uh, do my applied work in sports psychology. So let me ask you a question um, before we get into uh, sort of the meat of our discussion tonight. And that is, you know, for quite a few years, you know, we never really heard about uh, sports psychology. You never heard it. Any, any profession, when you go back to players like Nicholas and Palmer and that generation, you never heard the players really talking about um, having a, 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 you know, a golf psychologist or sports psychologist uh, as part of their entourage, if you will. But now it's a very commonplace. When do you think, based on your experience, was sort of the, the crossing of the threshold when golf started to recognize that it's not just... Uh, about swinging a golf club, that there's a lot more to the game that meets the eye. When do you think that sort of happened in your uh, experience? And what do you think it was that they saw um, as a way of improving themselves as a player on the golf course? Well, I'm not sure exactly when it started, but I can think back to times when it wasn't that weren't that long ago. I can remember Mm -hmm. uh, Johnny Miller, I think it was, on... on, uh, television, and he was saying mm-hmm. something like, Ernie Els is going to, one of those guys, uh, I mean, uh, you know, he's going, to, I can't believe Ernie Els would be doing this, you know, he, he goes to one of those people, that, you know, he couldn't even say the word psychology, you know? right? you know, I mean, it would just be out of his vocabulary, and, and, uh, right. and then, uh, let's see, well, I think, I've, you know, many of the other guys, too, have said things that I wanted to respond to, to him, uh, Oh, Nick Faldo said something as recently as just a few years ago, and I think Nick Faldo is mm-hmm. an excellent uh, uh, announcer and analyst and certainly golfer, and I, I don't know that he's against uh, sports psychology, nor Johnny Miller. you know. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, he, he said something about one of the guys, a, a rookie that just won, and they, he said that, you know, he took four years out to work on his mental game and now he's come back and he's winning, and he just he just couldn't believe it could take four years to work on your mental game. You know, he just he didn't mm-hmm. understand that. So I, I would say I would say I think one of the one of the key pl- people who made it seem worthwhile was uh, Dr. Richard Coop at the University of North mm-hmm. Carolina Chapel Hill, who worked with Payne right. Stewart when Payne Stewart was getting nowhere, and uh, he he. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he did a lot more than this, but one of the main, one of the things he remarks that he did, that he got him to go fishing. You know, Payne, Payne Stewart mm-hmm. was so intense, and he just couldn't lighten up, and so he wanted him to do something else, so he got him to go fishing, and uh, then he won two U.S. Opens, and all of a sudden, all the tour stops were making fishing available to everybody between <laughs> rounds in their ponds out on the right. course. <laughs> So, uh, right. so of course, that goes back. Uh, see, when did Payne Stewart win those? Was it was it the late 1970s or was it 80s or what? I can't uh, remember when it was. I think it was one in the late 90s. I don't recall off the top of my head, but yeah, he uh, just before he, uh, unfortunately, we lost him. He uh, he won a U.S. Open. He was against um, uh, Phil Mickelson, as I recall. But uh, yeah, it, you know, it, it's interesting because again, we never really heard. In, in the golf vernacular, if you will, anybody talk about psychology and uh, and how it, it helped their game. And and actually, Jack was really, uh, Nicholas is the only one that I can think of that era that didn't really used that word, but kind of, you know, talked about how, you know, 90% of the game, in his opinion, 
uh, was you know happening with the six inches between the ears, and really the the, the physical part of the game was was very minimal uh, compared to it. And he was really the only one that I'd ever heard really sort of reference that. Now he didn't get into you know sort of a deep dive about the you know discussion of, of psychology, but he did sort of reference the fact that it was a mental game, and and that's why he was so successful. Is it wasn't just because he could hit it farther or hit it straighter, because he certainly wasn't the, the best ball striker out there on tour at that time, but his mental prowess was so much like Tiger has uh, become over the, the last uh, you know uh, 15 or, t- or 20 years uh, was the same way. And I think that's why he was so successful, is he just realized that he had to get inside of his head and, and sort of clear out the cobwebs and get down to business. Um, I want yeah, to talk well, about it, something that... Go ahead. Okay, yeah, I just want to reinforce that. that uh, Nicholas, I understand, said that the game is 50% metal, 40% alignment, mm-hmm. and 10% swing. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and the other thing is he, uh, he, he said, uh, oh, yeah, you remember at the U.S. Open, he would say, well, okay, that guy is complaining about the speed of the greens. Scratch him off. Right. And, okay, that guy is complaining about the length of the rub. <laughs> Scratch him off. Right. In other words, his mental game has already taken him out of the tournament before he ever started. And I will throw out, too, right. that Raymond Floyd, Raymond Floyd was the extreme. He thought the game was 100% metal. Now, there's no way it could right. be that, you know, but that's the extreme of how important he thought the metal game was. Right, exactly. Oh, and, and, and Palmer, I, but, you know, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say Palmer, <laughs> you know, a, fr- a friend of mine uh, – <laughs> A friend of mine who knew his brother, actually, he was the best man in his wedding. Uh, he was over at the Palmer house, and Arnie came in, and uh, and he said, Hello, hey, Jack. He says, What are you doing now? And he says, Well, I'm a psychologist. Jack was a colleague of mine. He, he told Arnie, he says, I'm a psychologist. And Arnie said, Well, I'm a psychologist, too. <laughs> in other words, he knew he was psyching everybody out. <laughs> and so right. he felt as much of a psychologist as, as anybody else was. Right, exactly. Um, and, and, yeah, it, it was a whole different game back then. I mean, you know, obviously, um, I think they understood that they, from a, from the mind game, if you will, they may not have had all the vernacular down like we, we hear about today, but they understood that it wasn't just a matter of, um, you know, hitting all the golf shots just perfectly. It was about navigating around the golf course and understanding um, what it was that you needed to do inside your head. Once you were resolute inside your head of what you needed to do, then you could, it was a matter of executing um, that, that game plan, if you will. And that's what Nicholas did so very, very well. I want to, before we get into um, the nine R's of golf, what we're going to talk about tonight, uh, you sent me a case uh, that you worked with a male golfer, and I want to just quickly set this up, and then you can talk about the problems, uh, what they were struggling with, and then what you did to sort of uh, provide some remedy for. And this was a collegiate player. Uh, who you indicated was about really to lose their spot on the team. And then you talk about what you did below uh, to sort of help uh, get them back on track. So, so sort of set it up a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. What were some of the problems that this particular player was having? And then what did you do to help uh, uh, sort of turn things around? Yeah, well, he, he like you said, he came to me and he was about to lose his spot on the team. He was uh, only a sophomore, but he had, you know, made the team and been playing the year before, kind of struggled, and maybe struggling even more here, sophomore year, so it looked like it wasn't going to go very far. Uh, but anyway, so we just, I said, well, let's just make a list of what are the things that are interfering. And so mm-hmm. one was 
communication, you know, the communication between the player and the coach. Uh, both said the other wouldn't listen. Okay. Right. Um, execution, execution, not hitting enough greens. Um, mm-hmm. Concentration, he said, was inconsistent. He said he, mm-hmm. uh, from what he described, he was engaging in a lot of negative self-talk, you know, getting down on himself after bad shots. And he had right. this weird thing. He had difficulty with the line on putts when he was under pressure. In other words, I guess when he wasn't under pressure practicing, he could read them fine, but he just got blurry with his reading of greens when he was under there. Mm-hmm. So those were so the what five did you things do? we came up with. Right, so what did well, you do then? I mean, once you isolated uh, what some of the issues were that he was having, what were the remedies that you came up with? Well, for communication, I suggested don't argue with your coach. You know, just listen quietly and consider his suggestions. I mean, not only just listen so you don't, you know, aggravate him, but, uh, I mean, actually consider his suggestions. And then, uh, like I said, don't argue, leave, think about them or discard them, whatever you're going to do, but you're not anywhere arguing with him. And, frankly, right. if, if, you, if you don't use them and you succeed – Anyway, with your own ideas, well, give him some credit. You know, it'll it'll help you on the team if you at least make him feel and think that he he's contributing, and and he might be contributing in more ways than you think. So it's not going to do any good arguing with him and not considering what he has to say. Uh, so that right. was for communication. Now, now execution, I encouraged him to learn yardages. You know, does he really know his mm. exact yardages his clubs go? because that's going to be very important for hitting greens, which is his execution problem, uh, to be able to swing right. confidently and not get tentative or, or force a shot because you don't know exactly what the yard is. think. It's this club. You've got to know it's that club and swing at it uh, with commitment and confidence each, you know, each time you pull it out. And then the other thing was to play placement golf, which I wanted him not to just see how far he could hit it, you know, or even how straight he can hit it isn't the key thing. The key thing is where are you going to put the ball in the fairway? Where do you want to put it? And what club will get it there? And then what club will get this most safely to the middle of the green? You know, that will be the execution that will help you hit greens and make pars and have runs and birdies. As for concentration, I told him to let's develop a quick routine. You know, don't leave any gaps in your routine where, uh, you know, distraction can get in, you know, so make it as, as simple and tight a routine as you can and then run it off without hesitation. Uh, and negatalk fits in right here because if you don't have a quick routine, that, that uh, those negative thoughts can get in. But now he was really talking about his talk afterwards, his negative talk to himself, getting down on himself, mm-hmm. that I encouraged him to view bad situations as opportunities. In other words, you've right. got to say to yourself when you have bad luck, for example, that it's a good thing it's me that's got this and not a lesser player because I can handle this where a lesser player wouldn't. Back to Nicholas, I remember mm-hmm. another pro telling me one time who was playing with him that he landed in a divot on the last uh, hole after his drive, perfect drive in a divot, a drow, um, with that tough shot into the green at the time. You know, they had hit like a two-iron back then, or you know, mm-hmm. eight-iron now probably. But anyway, uh, he Nicholas just he didn't even give it a second look or second thought. He just stepped off his yardage or whatever it was to the next marker and came back and just smacked it out of that divot. And the, the pro that was playing with him said, Jack, Jack, I mean, didn't it bother you? There was a divot. He said, What could I do about it? 
You know, I'm, I just got to play it. But I have a feeling. I got a feeling Jack was saying, "Hey, I'm better than all these guys, and I, I can handle right. this. They can. I can." You know. And then as for uh, the pressure on uh, affecting his uh, putting reading, I suggested that he develop a routine for putting and focus on the technique rather than the outcome. In other Mm -hmm. words, don't make the line so important. Just get, you know, make your best, quickest estimate. I would would say to him now, you know, don't read it from all angles. Just take a good look at it and, and get your best first impression and then go up and hit it with conviction, you know, using your putting routine rather than, you know, hovering over the ball, worrying about do I have the right line. Yeah, and, and, you know, and those are some great, great uh, remedies, too, because, you know, one of the things that we see with, with uh, whether it be amateur or, or better players, um, uh, and I'm not talking tour players, but even some better golfers, is uh, a lot of the key points you talked about is, one, they may not have a routine, whether it be for putting or an overall routine. There's a lot of negative talk. Um, a lot of people, you know, and I, I like how you put it, you know, you're going to have bad shots. Every player, I don't care, even the best players in the world, have bad shots. The difference is that they look at as those as learning opportunities. And right. where an amateur player looks at them and, you know, they may have gone out, let's say, last Tuesday and had a couple of bad shots, maybe played an overall bad round, and this week they're out playing and they're not thinking about, hey, this is a new game. They're thinking about last Tuesday. They're thinking about the bad shots they hit on the – hole number four or hole number five or whatever the case is. And they're bringing, as I always refer to it, as they're bringing luggage or baggage, um, carrying it to them every hole that they play from past experience. So they're not really learning from it. They're just reinforcing those negative thoughts. And that's something that I think a lot of, uh, even some of the best players in the world have struggled with from time to time. Have you found that as well? Oh, sure. I mean, negative thoughts are one of the most difficult things. As a matter of fact, the second, the second uh, article I wrote, uh, I did it in conjunction with Johnny Miller, happened to be back in mm-hmm. 1978, uh, or that was actually 1980 then, and it was uh, called Negatalk, you know, which involves your mm-hmm. negative thoughts, and we, we both wrote on that. Um, so, I mean, yeah, when people say, say, I don't want to have any negative thoughts, I mean, you're going to have negative thoughts. You know, you're going right. to have fear and anxiety. I mean, you cannot eliminate them. You just have to learn how to most effectively deal with them. And, and certainly a routine is one way to plow through all of that because you just put yourself on automatic, and as long as you don't pause and you just run off your routine, there's no room for negative thoughts to get in, uh, no room for pressure to get in, really, if you, just, uh, if you have a tight, simple routine and, and start it with a trigger and run it off until you hit the shot, and then see what happens. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, let me, yeah, let me exactly. just mention, you know that golfer, that golfer two months later, he, he won the individual title at the conference championship. Hmm. Wow. So it just goes to show you that, you know, here's, here's somebody in, in one aspect thought his, his collegiate career was about to end, um, and it was just a matter of really changing his mindset and getting him to focus on things that were going to be productive and produce results as opposed to focusing on things that were creating further anxiety and further uh, stress and what have you. Um, it was a matter of really changing his mindset, I would think, correct? 
Well, that was part of it, but don't forget, I had him learn yardages, you know, which is a very physical thing, mm-hmm. you know, that he needed, right. he had neglected. You know, so it's part of the mental mm-hmm. game is, is realizing what you're not doing physically and committing yourself and mm-hmm. self-changing that, you know. So, uh, I mean, we can't blame everything on, on the mental, you know. I mean, as a matter of fact, that's, I think no. that's a, the mental game can become an excuse for people. In other words, excuse not to practice. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a head case. You know, I can't, uh, right. uh, I just can't, I, I'm, you know, I just can't do this mental thing. It's all psychological. Well, wait a minute. You know, are you really practicing enough? Have you done the technical aspects of, like, learning the yardages and figuring out your strategies and that, which is really mental again? I mean, it's, they're, they're so in, intermingled, it's hard to separate them, I, indeed. But mm-hmm. um, but I would never put all the pressure on the mental game any more than I put all the pressure on the physical game. You just you just have to do it. I mean, let me give you an example. I mean, I was working with a player today, hitting the beautiful – on the driving range. I said, you know, we, we've got to go out on the course and do this. So we go out on the yep. course and they get, they confront a green, you know, that's in front of them. They now have a target, you know, instead of just hitting it out mm-hmm. into the wild blue yonder on the driving range and the whole, whole <laughs> thing changes. They just can't repeat it. See, they have faced the mental game by just setting foot on the golf course and particularly putting themselves in front of a green you know, that, then you're working with the mental game and not just the physical. Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest transitions for most golf coaches out there is taking their player from the range. And I'm not talking about the high-level players, but, uh, you know, our high handicappers. This is a struggle that a lot of pros have, and this is why you see so many of them really almost forcing the issue, getting them out on the golf course as much as possible, because they, get, they're, they become a, a, a proficient range rat, as I call it, um, hitting some fantastic shots on the driving range, but then you step them up in the tee box, and then whether it be a short par three or or, uh, or what have you, and they've got to hit it out to a target out in the fairway, and suddenly it's like, well, where was the guy that you know five minutes ago in the range? You know, why why yeah. didn't he show up on the first tee? And that happens a lot. And again, uh, it, it's almost like I, I want to just mention real quick, and then, and then we got to move on to um, the nine R's of golf. I know you want to talk about that. Is I'm often reminded of a player, Ian Baker Finch. You know, who was a phenomenal ball striker. He had a, a very uh, great career early on. And I, I mean, I don't know, obviously, because I can't get inside of his head, but I think he was a good example that had at some point a problem with his mental game. And what I mean by that is I think maybe he relied um, too much on certain aspects of that, and, and he allowed a lot of negative talk to get into his mind. And he actually stepped away from uh, the physical part of uh, golf and ended up becoming an announcer. And not knocking that, but I often wonder how much further he could have gone if maybe he had have had a good uh, mental coach to work with at that time. And maybe he did, and it just didn't work out. I don't know. But, you know, he was a player I often wonder because he used to have a beautiful swing. Uh, he won, obviously, a few tournaments, um, but uh, never really, in my opinion, rose to the level I thought he could have um, at that particular time. And I think it wasn't that he didn't have the physical game. I just think that mentally he was not able to. Uh, in fact, he talked a little bit about this uh, very early on when he first became an announcer, that he really, I won't say had a breakdown, but he struggled mentally out on the golf course, and that was why he sort of walked away from the game. What do you, quick thoughts on that, if you have any, and then we'll move on to the nine R's. Well, I, I, I remember you know, Ian Baker Finch winning the uh, British Open, and he was somewhat the mm-hmm. rage, and he actually... 
he actually didn't just go away right away. He won a couple more tournaments. He was really pretty right. hot, you know, like, like you said, uh, going into it, and I think coming out of it, he won some more. And then, uh, but I don't know what what happened with him, but I will say this, you know, when you win a big tournament like that, and now all of a sudden all the eyes are on you, you know, winning that mm-hmm. second tournament could be harder than winning the first tournament. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, John Daly comes to mind as well. I mean, there are other issues involved, but, you know, the same way, when the 1991 um, PGA Championship, and he was a rising star and hit it a mile, and then all of a sudden his whole career just, you know, seemed to, to nosedive, and he's never really, I mean, you know, people liked him for whatever reason, but he's never really recovered from that, and I think there's a lot of truth to that, uh, to what you just said, is sometimes when you win a big event uh, and don't sort of ease into it along the way, uh, very early in your career, sometimes that can work as a negative uh, against you in some case, and that might be two examples right there. You, you could be right with that. Perhaps, yeah. But uh, it, it was just, you know, it's always interesting when you see different players and how they react to different si- situations. All right, I want to talk about the nine R's. Tell us first off what the nine R's, and then let's go through some of them. Okay, well, the nine R's. Well, let me say this first. You know, we always hear about the three R's you know, of uh, rewriting yep. Ripley. Uh, well, okay, right. that's education, of course. But, you know, golf, making the, you know, making the PGA Tour is much more difficult than getting a Ph.D. in academia. I mean, there's thousands and mm-hmm. thousands of Ph.D.s. There's only 125 guys on the PGA Tour, you know, so it's not surprising right. that you need more R's, you know, for, for to become a great <laughs> golfer than you do to become a great academician. So anyway, with that introduction, the, the nine R's are as follows. Uh, they are realism, relaxation, uh, re- rationality, responsibility, routine, reinforcement, regularity, repeatability, and reliability. And, uh, and not necessarily in that order, but I would start actually right. with realism and responsibility. So talk a little bit with that realism, just define what you're specifically talking about here, um, and then we'll move into responsibility. Okay. Uh, with realism, I'm saying that it would, at, at any stage of the game you're at, be it a 10-year-old or be it in the prime of your game or be, be it uh, a senior, you know, you've got to be realistic about what you can do and not try to kid yourself that you can do more. So like a 10-year-old has to be realistic about how far they can hit the ball. So they certainly have to be willing to play appropriate tees to give them a chance to play the game in a realistic way. You know, plus they have to you know, count all their strokes, keep all their scores, so they get a realistic assessment of how they're playing and how they're developing and seeing their scores. True scores actually improve, not fake ones where they're just you know, taking gimmies all over the place, taking shots over who knows right. what. So you want to get a realistic view of who you are. Now, if you're a senior golfer, you know, you have to adjust and be realistic that maybe as a, as a, in the primary game you broke 80 regularly. You're going to have to accept mm-hmm. breaking 90 now or breaking 100 and be realistic about what right. you're what you achieve at this age. And, uh, and you also have to take appropriate handicap strokes when you're entitled to it to have a realistic match with somebody and not be too proud to be uh, to not take strokes, which will not uh, is not realistic. 
you know, it, it, if you're playing a younger person, who can play a lot better than you. Yeah, and 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 you're you're exactly right there too. I mean, this is something that as as golf professionals we talk about all the time is setting realistic goals. Um, so often we see people come out, and I mentioned this earlier on the program before you came on to our panel, and you know I said that a lot of times we'll get somebody who will, you know, maybe played uh, Pinehurst last year and shot a phenomenal score, and they come out the beginning of this season and they can't figure out where their game has gone. And well, you know, I played great last summer when I when I went on vacation, and now all of a sudden I don't know where my game is. And so they don't set realistic goals, and you've got to you've got to kind of reassess them as you go along too. I mean, what you might have a goal right now um, might not be the same goal that you might have three or even six months down the road. Would I be right? Well, sure. Yeah, yeah. I love the notion of realistic goals. Uh, you know, particularly short-term goals. Take pick short-term goals that lead to the long-term goals. And be realistic about how far you can go, but also where you are in the progress in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of uh, players, especially as you said, some of our senior players, um, you know, that maybe pretty regularly were breaking 80. Um, you know, some of them might be fortunate if they're really athletic; they might still be in that range, and or might be knocking on the door to do that still. Uh, but a lot of them aren't going to. They just don't have the physical prowess that they once did. They're not 20 years old anymore. They're maybe 70 or, or even beyond. And, um, you know, they're not going to hit it as far. And they're, they're always looking for that edge. They're saying, well, what can I do to get more distance? That's going to solve my problem. And the truth of the matter is it's just not going to happen. Um, they might get a little bit extra. And, you know, they're, it's like they're trying to buy their game. And you just can't do that. So let's move on to responsibility. What's, what's the responsibility that we have to have? Well, if you want to uh, improve, uh, you're only going to delay yourself if you blame your errors and mistakes on things other than you. you know, in other words, if you're you know, hitting bad sand shots, chip shots, whatever they are, and you're blaming it on, well, the sand's not consistent or whatever it is, uh, uh, your arts, uh, who knows what. I mean, all the time you're blaming, you're delaying yourself improving because you're not focusing on what you have to do to improve and practicing it. Because why would you have to practice it if it's not your fault? You know, so you, you, have, to, you, have, to take, you have to take the blame yourself for what's going wrong with your game and then look at what you have to do to remedy that and then take action and, and learn the right way and practice it and, uh, and give up blaming other things. Now, now, let me say something in contrast there. Uh, that is because most of us, you know, journeyman golfers, haven't really learned everything totally correctly, and we've got a lot to learn. But now when you go to the pro right. tour, you will see something the opposite happening, which, which confounded me a little bit at first. They do a lot of blaming out there. In other words, when they have something wrong, they will blame. Mm-hmm. They will blame the conditions. They will blame the course. You know, they will blame their partner. You know, if it's a team right, of that. Right. And and I think the reason there is they have plenty of learning. They know how to play the game. They know how to every shot. So what they're trying to do is keep their motivation up. You know, all performance right. comes from a combination of learning and motivation. The pros have to focus more on keeping their motivation right and their or their. Uh, Know, their positive view of themselves, uh, where we, um, like I said, uh, average golfers have to worry more about learning the game. You know, we got plenty of motivation. Right. 
We just we need to learn the game, and that's where responsibility comes in. You have to be responsible to recognize what you're doing wrong and what you have to learn to do differently. Right, and I just want to add real quickly. Um, you know, this is something that I often hear on. on uh, you know, Dr. Phil always refers to this, and this goes to a point you were making about responsibility. As you can't really change what you don't acknowledge. If you don't acknowledge uh, some of the problems that you're having, and you're just sort of sloughing them off or throwing blame elsewhere, you're never going to be able to change them into a positive. So, um, you know, and I always like that because he always talks about that on his program in different circumstances, not golf, of course, but, um, and I think there's a lot of truth to that is if you don't acknowledge um, the responsibility or the problems that you're facing with, then you're not going to be able to, to effectively change them. And I think a lot of people, especially amateurs, fall into that trap. Um, so it's very interesting from a, a professional level to an amateur level how they view things differently and how they react differently under the same uh, scenario like that. Um, I want to move on to regularity. What are you talking about here? Give us an idea. You need to practice and, and play a little bit, ideally, every day, you know, rather than mm -hmm. you know, doing a little something every day on a regular basis rather than waiting for the weekend and playing, uh, you know, 36, 54 holes and those what. You know, it's better to do a little thing, uh, you know, a little bit regularly all the time. So, so therefore, obviously, you can't play 18 holes every day if you're working, going to school. So you might be able to stop by the range or the putting green for a half hour on the way home from work. You know, if nothing else, you could uh, swing a club in the backyard uh, or put a little on the carpet. You know, you could at least review your swing thoughts. What, what I really yep. uh, strove to do myself was come, go play just three holes. But play a quality three holes. You know, don't rather than just going out and saying I can run around, I can jump on a cart, and I can run around nine holes. And it, you know, I would rather see you play three holes and play them very seriously, a very quality three holes. You know, warm up a little bit for them, whatever you have to do. But but don't rush it. Get in three good holes rather than nine worthless holes. Yeah, and that's an excellent point because, and especially in today's uh, environment, you know, we've got. Um, time restrictions with a lot of people. Um, they don't. They can't afford to, and I don't mean financially, but they can't afford to go out uh, time-wise to play 18 holes. Some of them don't even have nine holes, um, uh, you know, to be able to get in on a consistent basis. So you're right, um, you know. And I think golf courses need to adjust to that as well. And obviously, there's some situations where that's not as doable, and some of your, uh, you know, places like a Pinehurst and that, that's a little bit more difficult to do because of the volumes coming in. But you know, I would like to see maybe more executive-style courses come on the scene again, like we used to have uh, more of them, um, and allow people to be able to go out and just play three or four or five holes, uh, but play them effectively and not just sort of, you know, try to cram as many in as they can. I mean, it might seem like fun uh, in some aspects, but you're not really learning anything of value from it. You're just getting it whatever you can, uh, you know, sort of the bigger bang for the buck, and but you're not really learning anything from it. So you're exactly right. I think playing, you know, three or, or maybe even a few more real quality holes that you can learn from and really examine and then sort of assess what took place when you get home and say, okay, you know, these three holes, uh, you know, I happen to have a, a par three, four, and five here in the mix. Um, what did I learn from these? And then really do a sort of a self-examination of some of the trouble areas that you fa were faced with and then what you can do to make changes moving forward. Um, yeah, and if it's, your, if it's your home course, Play a different three holes every time you go out. You know, really. Right, you know exactly. Right, exactly. 
And and because you know, again, I think if you're you're doing that, then you know the next time when you come out and you're faced with those three holes, you're going to really have done a deep dive in it, as opposed to just going out and doing the same routine. Um, I, I want to jump onto the next one here, uh, you know, which is relaxation, um, because there's a lot of components in this one here. Uh, we're not just talking about kicking your feet up on the chair and relaxing and and uh, you know catching a nap. You're talking about something entirely different here. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, of course, relaxation is so key because it, it contributes to the fluid action of the uh, golf swing. If you're tight and tense, you don't can't possibly have the fluidity you need to create club head speed. And, and so, a lot of people think, well, I'm just not a relaxed person, or somebody else is so laid back and relaxed. Well, you know, certainly some people might be predisposed to be more relaxed than others, but relaxation is, relaxation is a skill you can learn, and everyone can learn to be more relaxed than they are anyway. So some uh, little things, I mean, that can, little, little things that you might think about learning more about. I can't tell you that you're going to be able to do these things totally effectively by my just mentioning them here, but, but the, one of the mm-hmm. most simple, simple things is, abdominal breathing, uh, mm-hmm. using your abdomen, your stomach. Uh, in other words, feeling it in your stomach. Most people, when they think of taking a deep breath, you know, their chest puffs out. You know, well, that's an artificial breath. When you normally breathe, if you're listening right now, you can put your hand on your stomach, and when you feel yourself breathing, you'll feel your stomach go in and out. Your chest isn't doing anything. Your stomach's going in and out. Okay, and so right. focusing on your stomach and it's going in and out. Uh, if you just sit out on the, uh, the bench of the tee while you're waiting for the next group or whatever, and just kind of close your eyes and feel your stomach going in and out, that's just a simple little way to get centered and focused, uh, with, uh, which contributes to relaxation. So that's one simple little thing. Now, another one is uh, Dan Kirschenbaum. Uh, suggested maybe both of these next two things, but this this one for sure, of letting the air breathe you. You know, instead of thinking I'm sucking in air and then I'm blowing it out, kind of just feel like you know, the outside of you is just kind of pulling the air out of you and then pushing it back into you and pulling it out of you and pushing it back into you. You know, let the air breathe you, almost kind of like, you know, say a situation but back in the, back in the mid-century, last century, with the iron lungs. You know, they breathed for the person. Mm-hmm. They, they, they did the breathing for them. So, I mean, if you can kind of get the feeling that the air outside of you is breathing you rather than you breathing the air. Then, similarly, uh, let the club swing you instead of you swinging mm-hmm. so intently. And the way to do that is to, you know, Ernest Jones wrote a book uh, years ago called Swing the Clubhead. And he was just saying, you feel that heavy, you, you know, may have to imagine the clubs are kind of lighter now, but there's still more weight out in the head of the club than there is on the, in the handle, you know, so just waggle it and feel that heavy weight and just feel it like it's a hammer in the Olympics, you know, the big ball on the end of the chain, yep. that whirl and whirl around, and that chain stays taut out there, and then suddenly they let that ball go. I mean, that's what you want to feel like, I feel like, with the club head, that you've got that heavy thing out there, you're just whirling it by, and just like you're going to throw that club head at that tree in the distance down there. You know, so uh, let the club head swing you with its heavy weight out there that you can hardly control. It's just pulling you through the swing. 
the old the old standby for relaxation is contracting contracting muscles successively through your whole body. So you know this can kind of, this can probably take some guidance through somebody guiding you through this. But basically, what it comes down to, what the person guiding you through is going to say, okay, now I want you to curl your toes up, get comfortable in your chair, and I want you to curl your toes up as tight as you can and hold them there real tight for a little while. And then he says, okay, now let them go. Then you just let them go. Okay. Now, when you let them go, you're feeling relaxation in your feet. You know, before you did this, you didn't know what your feet were. Your feet were nothing. You know, but when you tighten them up real tense, you knew what tension was. And when you let them go, then you feel what relaxation is, which you couldn't, couldn't create before you did that. Now, if you do that through your whole body, as a matter of fact, right now, you can take your hand, and you're not paying any attention to your arms right now, but you take, take your hand, and you clench it real tight. And then when I say let go, keep it clenched tight. When I say let go, just let it drop out of there. Okay, keep it tight, clench tight, real tight, let go. Okay. Now, now that feeling mm-hmm. in your arm you have right now if, from letting go of the tension is relaxation. That's what relaxation feels like. Right. So, so if you do this, if you do this uh, sequence through your whole body, uh, from your toes to your face, uh, regularly, you will learn the feeling of relaxation. And if you do it in a way that you pair the word relax with letting it go, you can create a classical conditioning situation where just the word relax will, will give you a conditioned response of that letting go. And so what I do mm-hmm. when I go over, over a shot, I just say, relax. And I can feel my arms and legs. I just felt it right now. Let go because mm-hmm. I've done that repetitive exercise uh, enough times. Yeah, and we used to, I just want to add real quick to this, you know, talking about going back to the club as well. Um, you know, what, one of the things I always try to do with a lot of students is I have them, because a lot of students have problems with, with grip pressure, um, creates a lot of tension in their golf swing. They don't feel the club head. So I do something very similar as I have them squeeze as tight as I can, not the club so much, but just squeeze their hands as you just suggested so they can feel how tight that is and then relax uh, and let go. And then they feel what it feels like the opposite of, of that sort of tense uh, feeling. And then I tell them you want to find somewhere in between there is how you want to grip the club. You don't want to grip it tight so that the veins in your arms are bulging out and, and you feel that, that tension in your upper body, you, and you don't want to have it completely relaxed too much uh, that your club's going to slip through your hands. So you want to find some grip pressure in between. So I think that's a great exercise really to help sort of cover both of those areas is, is finding that relaxation in your muscles um, so that when you're standing over the, the, the uh, golf ball, you don't have this death grip uh, over the, on the golf club and you're not feeling uh, and not able to swing and feel the club head as it swings through. And I think that's where a lot of our amateur golfers fall into because if you look at most professional golfers, Tom Watson comes to mind. He always talked about how it really he has a very light grip pressure um, on the club. He was one that always used to talk about that um, to the point where it almost wasn't going to come through his fingers, but it felt like somebody could very easily walk up and just pull it out of his hand. So I think that's a great... Um, some great techniques that you just mentioned that hopefully will help some golfers out there. Yeah, I I think you're right. I would have said the same thing about the grip. Squeeze that grip Mm -hmm. and then let it go. And um, Mm -hmm. I think you can kind of get to that middle range if you just just squeeze it and then let go, but not let go that you drop the club. Just just lighten up on getting that tension. But you know Sam Sneed described it as, 
you hold the club like a bird. You know, not so tight that you squeeze it to death, but not so loose that it flies away. Right, exactly. Um, and, and those are just some things that I think will help, uh, going back to the original point, and that is the relaxation, is, is doing a lot of the breathing techniques that you talked about, and then obviously with the, the muscle flexing and releasing as well um, is going to help in a lot of areas. And I think, it'll, you know, people that do a lot of these things, and, that, and this is what things that, you know, we don't see the professionals. For those amateurs out there, they're not seeing what the professionals do. They're seeing hit balls up at a range or they watch them navigate around the golf course, but they don't see what they do to prepare. And I guarantee you that a lot of them, the better players anyways, are doing a lot of things that you're talking about here tonight. Um, let's move on to uh, routine. Okay. Well, routine, you know, we've already talked a bit about it. You know, it's a standard mm-hmm. sequence of steps that you, you put your game on automatic. And, you know, everybody's just going to be unique. you just got to figure out what your routine is. It's probably going to be something like you're standing behind the ball, looking down the line, and then you step into the shot and you get your alignment, and then you uh, maybe take one more look, do a little waggle, and swing. You know, the thing of it is you've got to do the same thing every time and uh, run it off uh, without hesitation, without any gaps in there. Uh, It was said that... uh, during Greg Norman's uh, collapse, unfortunate collapse of the Masters, I think it was in 1996, that his routine on the back nine was one second longer than his routine on the front nine. And Hmm. a second is is an eternity for negative thoughts to come in. uh, Now, you know, a routine is is particularly helpful um, under pressure. You know, it gives you something else to think about than this scary situation you're in. I think it's particularly helpful when you get overconfident, you know, because when you get overconfident, you might neglect the very things that got you where you are in the round, and you need to step back and make a quick review and make sure you do your routine as rigorously as you have been doing it and don't, uh, you know, rush it or or skip over something. Um, Also, when you're tired or fading, your routine may be the only thing that will save you. you know, in other words, you mm-hmm. just feel like I can't swing. Well, but I can run through that routine. I've done it so many times. You know, so, uh, you know, it, it keeps your thoughts focused and keeps your emotions in balance. So that's another thing. When you're starting to lose it out there, uh, anger or emotionally, you know, get back to your routine. So you can say, okay, I'll be mm-hmm. mad. I'm not going to let it keep me from doing my routine. You're not saying I'm not going to let it keep me from hitting a perfect shot. I don't know where the shot's going to go, but I'll consider myself a success if I can just execute my routine. Yep, I I could agree more. And and what people don't realize, the other thing that the routine does, it actually helps keep your tempo in check because a lot of times when you fall out, as, as you point out with Greg Norman, if you fall out of your routine, it affects other areas of your game. So that's a great way to bring you back in balance, as you said, um, by sticking with that routine and having the same length of routine, the same process throughout that routine. Um, so that way when you're in a difficult stretch of maybe a couple of holes or a bad uh, round, what have you, um, that's a way of sort of keeping you centered in, in some respects as well. And a lot of people, what you'll see will start to happen, especially with amateur golfers, is that's a quick sign to see when they're starting to, as I put it, having a meltdown, is you'll see the routine will change. They'll start out pretty good for a few holes um, with their routine. It's pretty steady. It's the same every time. And then all of a sudden they hit a few bad shots or they play a couple bad holes, and all of a sudden you'll see on the next hole 
their routine will entirely change. It suddenly they're they're not waggling the club anymore, or uh, they're not standing behind you know the ball and, and visualizing the shot. They're just stepping right up there and, and getting ready to hit it. So that's a, a great point to really emphasize on players is that if you stick with that routine, even if you're struggling, that's going to help keep you centered and balanced and help keep you focused as well. So some great points there on, on routine. Um, repeatability is a, a term we hear a lot in, in golf. I want to be repetitive with my swing. I want it the same swing every time. I want to be able to hit the shots consistently every time. Is that what we're talking about here? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, ben Hogan, you know, that was his goal, to have a, a swing that would repeat, but his goal was specifically under pressure. In other words, it was easy enough, he felt, to have a repeating swing when you're out just playing a casual round, but if it doesn't hold up under pressure, it's not worth it. So he, that's what he, he was always striving for, a swing that would repeat under pressure. And, uh, you know, Mo Norman, uh, the legendary Canadian yep. golfer, yep. he too, you know, wanted to come up with And he came up with such a repeating swing. He, he just could, they could, he could land a, a whole bunch of balls on a, on a blanket, you know, out there at 175 <laughs> yards, you know, they said. Um, and, of course, the fastest way to have a repeating swing and have it hold up under pressure is to have a simple swing uh, with minimal mm-hmm. moving parts. You know that because when the more moving parts you have, there's more parts that something go wrong with. But if you right. <laughs> if you can have a lengthy swing like Bryson DeChambeau, I guess probably has the simplest swing. You know, it's just on mm-hmm. one plane, just one piece. And that, actually, that's Mo Norman. You know, I wonder if he studied mm-hmm. Mo Norman's swing because it was it was analyzed enough, and he, he kind of he looks like that a little bit. Except Norman had this weird thing with his legs, uh, you know, which uh, DeChambeau right. does. Right, exactly. Um, rationality? Uh, rationality, you know, rationality is really uh, mentioned as kind of the opposite of emotions. You know, you've got mm-hmm. to keep your emotions intact, which means you're going, you're rational, you'll be more rational about what you're doing out there by not letting your emotions take over. I mean, we know the tour players who have been successful have learned to control their emotions. As a matter of fact, when I work with junior players now who are the most emotional probably and have the hardest time controlling it, it's almost useless to work with them until I can convince them that, you know, the controlling of your emotions and approaching the game more rationally is, is mm-hmm. foundational before we work with much else. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, um, you know, the other thing about rationality is having a reason for the way you play each shot. You know, you just don't grab a club and hit it. You don't just because you're on the tee. You just don't grab a driver. You know, you take a look at what's right. in front of you and say, where do I want to place this shot? What's the best club to get it there? And what's the percentage way to play this hole? That's all rationality about the game. So once emotions take over, rationality goes out the window. And without rationality, you're not going to navigate the golf course. As a matter of fact, the subtitle to my book, Golf the Mental Game, is Thinking Your Way Around the Course. And in fact, mm-hmm. a matter of fact, that subtitle appeals to people more than the, the main title, I think. Yep, I couldn't agree more. Um, and then, obviously, something we can all use a little bit, and that is reinforcement. Give me your thoughts yeah. there. <laughs> well, give yourself credit. Uh, you, you know, you're making mm-hmm. progress and reward yourself. So how can you tell if you're making progress? 
Well, keep records. Keep records and note your progress. And when you get to certain levels, uh, have some kind of reward prepared for you. Like maybe I'll go play this course I've been wanting to play and I'll spring for the bucks, you know, because I have achieved this goal and I think it makes me worthy of playing there. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, and yeah, you, you have to be reinforce. You have to give yourself, as you said, credit. Um, you know, obviously, we all, you know, we all want to do good things uh, on the golf course. We want to be able to hit some good shots. We want to have some good holes. Um, we know there's going to be some bad ones along the way, um, but we don't want to dwell on the bad stuff all the time. I mean, we have to acknowledge it. We have to, um, you know, do things to make uh, effective change. Uh, but you also have to look at the good things that you've done along the way and give yourself credit. And when you've put together some good rounds and, and you've done that, give yourself a, a pat on the back, if you will, and then, you know, analyze that as well and say, okay, what have I been doing right here these last, uh, you know, this last month? I've been out playing a couple of times every week, and I'm really hitting it solid, and I'm really feeling good about my game. Um, what is it I'm doing positive? And, and, you know, use that as a reinforcement. And then, you know, reward yourself, as you said. Um, give yourself a gift along the way just to say, hey, I've been really doing well and here's some, somewhere I want to play. And, yeah, you you know, you know, whip out the plastic and yeah. you go and have a good time. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. And then the last one, uh, Tom. Let me just, okay, sorry, go ahead. Do I have time yeah. to throw in Dan Dr. Dan Kirschenbaum, who I mentioned earlier, he had, he had three groups he set up. One group. He said, after each hole, I want you to note all your bad shots you know, so you can review them later. The next group, he said, I want you to write down all your good shots. Yeah, I want you to reflect back on those on the previous hole before you start the next hole. And then another group, he didn't have them reflect on anything, you know, just play the game. And so anyway, the mm-hmm. ones who reflected back on their good shots, in effect, reinforced themselves for what they did good on the previous hole, even though there may have been some bad mm-hmm. shots, they just didn't focus yep. on them. They focused on the good shots. They shot the better rounds uh, right. overall. Yeah, and, and that's what better players do. I mean, I mean every – I mean, Lord, if you watch any LPJ or PJ event um, at whatever level, um, you know, there's – we may not see it on television, but if you actually physically go to an event, you're going to see some bad shots. Uh, you're going to see a lot of great shots and some good shots but you're going to see some bad shots as well. But you're right. They reinforce their game um, by focusing on the good shots, and they don't really dwell on the bad shots. They don't even really acknowledge them. Um, you know, uh, certainly reporters sometimes will ask them questions, you know, what happened here, or, or, you know, you missed that putt on such and such, and they'll do it, but they always put a positive spin on it. They always say, well, yeah, you know, um, it, I, I read the green a little bit differently. They always find a way to, to sort of turn it around and make a positive out of it, and that's the difference between the better players and the and the you know the rest of us out there. Uh, the last one is re- reliability. Um, yeah. Let's uh, close out with uh, with uh, reliability. What are we talking about here? Well, I, I'm talking here really about cons- being consistent, consistent golfing behavior and attitude. You know, uh, who are you as a golfer? Who can people expect to see when you come out? Who can they expect to be playing with? You know, are you going to be consistent in your in your demeanor, you know, and dependable in your behavior uh, is particularly important. Uh, and, and then, you know, you show up on time. We can depend on this guy. He's reliable. Uh, he always plays hard to the finish. We can depend on that. He's not going to give up and play carelessly and walk off the course, 
you know, and violate all the tenets of the gentlemanly game, you know. And we, his right. guy's a reliable guy we can depend on. And then also, you know, once you have done all the stuff we've been talking about and you've gotten pretty good, uh, you know, rely on yourself. You know, say that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I know enough what I'm doing. I don't have to listen to every bit of advice everybody tries to give me. I don't have to experiment right. with every new thing. You know, I'm a reliably good golfer right now, and I'm going to go with what I think is best because I've learned a lot, and I, I think I know how to play the game. Yeah, and this is why I think you see some of our our senior golfers that have been playing for a while, they know where their strengths or weaknesses. I mean, if they've been playing for 30, 40 years, uh, and I'm not talking about pro-level golfers, I'm talking about our uh, high-handicap golfers or, or average everyday golfers, um, they know where their strengths and weaknesses are. Um, and they know they need to practice, and, and um, you know, some of them will go out and diligently do that each season, and some of them just say, you know, this is the game I've got. I'm, you know, I'm 75 years old. I know I'm not going to, you know, hit it out there 250, 260 yards anymore. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to try to fool myself, um, you know, and, and suddenly join the gym and, and uh, you know, bulk myself up and, you know, do all these things that a lot of people do. Um, they're realistic about it. And then there's certainly changes that they can do to, to see some, some modest improvement, but they know they're not going to, you know, if they were shooting in the 70s uh, for most of their, their time, uh, even the best players in the world, as they age and get older, their scores start slowly going up. Um, they're not shooting 59, 64, 65 anymore um, because they just understand that the game has changed uh, for them. And I think once you do that, and as you said, apply those uh, nine R's and really put them into focus, I think you're going to have more enjoyment. And it's really about having fun uh, when it comes to playing this game. If you're challenging yourself, that's fine. But if you're putting yourself in a position where you're becoming so overwhelmed with everything that you're doing or so beating yourself down every week when you go out in the golf course, um, you know, that's when you see people drop off the game because they're, they're frustrated, they're not happy about it, and they just say, what's the point? Uh, you know, I can't do anything anymore, and I'm just going to pack it up and, you know, uh, drift off into the sunset. And that's what I think we have to get back to, is getting people to have more fun. And I think by allowing them to focus on some of the things we talked about here tonight, I think that's going to give them an overall enjoyment of the game. Final thoughts. Well, I was just thinking that, you know, people all along said, gee, I wish I could play like Jack Nicklaus. And now they can. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. Um, no, it, it, you know, it, it's an ever-changing. Go ahead. Well, I was also thinking that, you know, I just saying to somebody the other day, I, I, in my prime I had a handicap that varied between four and seven over the course of the year. And, and now I don't know what my handicap would be. I don't even have one, you know. But you know, I still, I still think like a single handicapper. You know, I still mm-hmm. uh, know the game like a single handicapper. I still walk like a single handicapper. And actually, if people mm-hmm. saw me hitting individual shots, they would say that guy's a single handicapper. And yet, every right. time in, my scores are in the low 40s, you know, for nine holes. And I've hit, I've, I've played holes. I could have broken 40 that day, but I do something senior stupid you know, that, that <laughs> prevents it from happening. You know? and, uh, I'm not, I, I, I typically just play nine holes, and I'm, I'm trying to sh- – I'll be 76. So I'm trying to shoot 38 yep. for nine holes, and I figure that will be uh, sh- shooting my age. 
That's right. That's that's exactly the way you look at it. Well, Tom, I want to thank you for, for joining this evening. It's been interesting to uh, uh, listen to some of the, the different points that you made. Um, I want to give you an opportunity. I know you've got some uh, books still available out there. Um, maybe you can share with the listeners where they can go if they want to um, uh, get a copy of one of your books and also if they're interested in uh, maybe uh, learning more about some of the articles that you've written over the years uh, if you have a website which I know you do if you want to uh, give that as well if people want to reach out and and get more information sure uh, well my, my uh, last book was golf the mental game and you can find it on Amazon read the reviews uh, you know, uh, they'll tell you whether you want to read it or not the, the first book was the complete golfer Physical Skill and Mental Toughness, uh, that was written back in 1996, still very relevant, uh, but out of print, you know, so you'd have to get that mm-hmm. used, but you can probably find that also on Amazon. And uh, as far as my mm-hmm. website, it's dorsal.com, dorsal with an E-L.com, and I can be contacted there. Uh, but let me tell you this, I'm, I'm changing uh, uh, hosting services, so right now, anytime, hopefully it's only going to be down for 20 minutes, they tell me. But if you don't get it the first time, you know, wait, wait a week and try again. It'll, that, that'll be back mm-hmm. up. And I'm also on Facebook at uh, Sports Psychology of Hilton Head. Sport Psychology of Hilton Head, if you put that in the search in Facebook. And, and all, my, all my books are, get, contain a lot of my articles, so you don't have to go back looking for the articles. Particularly Golf the mm-hmm. Metal Game is, is 50 of my articles that were in Golf Illustrated uh, over a 12-year period only they're organized in a logical fashion now in the book Golf the Mental Game. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's about, about what I can tell you about my work. Well, Tom, I appreciate you coming on the show this night. Uh, it was a pleasure having you as my guest, and I'm definitely going to have you before the season's out. Uh, I'm going to invite you back again another time to uh, have a further discussion. I think it's a great topic, and I think it's an important topic to talk about uh, um, what goes on upstairs, if you will, uh, with the average golfer out there and how we can help them along. So we'll see what we can do uh, the next time you and I get together here on Golf Talk Live. But thank you very much for spending some time with me tonight. And again, go to dorsal.com, that's D-O-R-S-E-L.com, and you can also find them on Facebook as well. And don't forget to go to Amazon.com. And Ted, if I could throw in, Ted, I'm, I've also affiliated with John Hughes Golf, and so you can go to johnhughesgolf.com, and I can also be reached through that, too. Perfect. Again, Tom, thank you very much for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. As always, uh, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed our discussion immensely, and I know the fans will get something out of it as well, the uh, listeners of the show. So um, thank you for tuning in. Until the next time, have a great weekend, and uh, I'll see you next time here on Golf Talk Live. All right, that was my very special guest, uh, Dr. Tom Dorsal, uh, joining me here on Golf Talk Live. A very interesting discussion, and uh, you can find him, as uh, we mentioned, a number of different ways. Um, but I will be back next week with another uh, panel discussion and another great uh, uh, guest uh, next week, so make sure you join us. God bless everybody, and have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.